Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name is Nick Brax and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. On today's episode, I want to welcome Daniel Whithouse. Daniel has spent the past two decades challenging homophobia in schools, rural communities, and occasionally developing countries like Sri Lanka, Poland, and Indonesia. He is the author of Beyond Priscilla, One Gay Man, One Gay Truck, One Big Idea, Beyond That's So Gay, Challenging Homophobia in Australian Schools, and the Pride and Prejudice Educational Package. In 2013, Daniel founded the National Institute for Challenging Homophobia Education, which focuses on the needs of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people in regional, rural, and remote Australia. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, Move Your Mind. I was introduced to you about a week ago. Since then, I've been able to have a look at what you do and it is incredibly inspiring and I'm so excited to have this chat to you today and hear more about what you do and have this opportunity to be able to give your message and voice to our audience as well and hopefully help, you know, a few people along the way. So thank you for coming on here, mate. It's a pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh so just before we get into it, um can you just tell me a little bit about your background and the work that you do now? Um my name's Daniel. I my pronouns are he him and his. I'm lucky enough to be the CEO and founder of a rural-based charity which focuses on lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and intersex and queer people. Um so some people might have heard LGBTIQ before. Uh and it's basically my my life's calling is to work with regional, rural and remote communities to make them safer for LGBTIQ people and often that means working with decision makers and influencers. But I guess I guess myself I I started off as a a young gay man uh living and working in Geelong and studying psychology and was really looking for a way to contribute to the world and I think uh this might be it. Amazing. And and uh from what you were telling me, you know, you're very active in uh the programs you're running, you work with the government, you go into different schools, organizations. I looked up a lot of, you know, what you've done and it sounds like you've been incredibly hands-on. Are you still hands-on in, you know, delivering a lot of these this training yourself in these different organizations? Yeah, I I I certainly am. It's it's really important for me to to get out there and do two things. So, it's important firstly that in this work that I actually go to the communities and work with them and that sounds strange, but um in recent years I've been working on a a government uh, project and often people can fall into the trap of thinking that you can do regional, rural and remote work from the city. uh based on zooms and phone calls and emails and it's really really important to get out there on the ground and have conversations with people and the second thing is which is is it it takes up time but it's the most crucial thing for me is that I get out and listen to people on the ground uh and it might sound a little bit cliche but actually visiting people in their own space and hearing what the issues are uh you know looking into their eyes you can get a sense about what's important to them but also what needs to happen going forward absolutely i think that's a you know i love that answer and i think you know this current situation has really fast tracked the use of zoom and different you know um web conferencing tools which i think's important but uh 
I, I really hope, um, I mean, I know as well from the work I've done, I've found it most rewarding and impactful when I've physically been in the room. And it's, it's hard to get that, that same impact. And I think what I love about the work you're doing is the fact that, yes, in this area, there are other services and, you know, in mental health as a whole, you know, there's so many places people can go to. But what we do need more of, more than ever right now, because technology is taking over everything, we need, you know, the, going back to basics, someone just in a room talking to people in an engaging way, letting them know that it's okay to, to talk, sharing stories, sharing experience. You can't replace that. Technology cannot replace that. I'm a, I'm a huge believer that you can change the world one cup at a time. And you can do that by listening to people. And, and obviously that gives you know, people a chance to share their story and what's important for them. But one of the things that, that really continues to surprise me about the work that I do is that people will say a couple of things. Firstly, they'll say is, oh, you don't want to hear my story and my experience because it's not that interesting. It's probably boring to you. So first of all, people don't, you know, don't believe that they've got something important to say. And the second thing is, is because usually I have cups of tea with people and anyone who's ever had a cup of tea, you know, will know, with me will know that I will be writing notes madly. I'll be taking down all of their quotes and their ideas and asking them questions and pressing them further. And, and often what they'll say at the end of it is, I haven't had the experience of someone giving a shit about what it is that I have to say. I didn't, you know, I didn't think that my opinions mattered. It's, it's really refreshing and that makes a difference to people. And, um, you know, obviously that, you know, people will talk about rapport building and all of the rest of it. But for me, for me, uh, you know, I've been in this, in this work for 24 years and the thing that you know, rings true from all of those 24 years of experience is that everyday stories change hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about policies and funding and, and media and campaigns and all of these things are important, but it's everyday people sharing their everyday stories that will change the hearts and minds of the people around them. And I'm lucky that I get in amongst that, um, particularly in regional, rural and remote settings um, almost every day, every week. Yeah, it's beautiful, mate. And, um, you know, it, it, it really is, you know, that, that simple in the sense that it is just sharing a story and I mean, what I've found from from the work I've done, it's a similar thing where people feel like, oh, but my story is not as interesting or as relevant. Or, And, you know, the first thing I say every single time I do a talk, I'll stand there and say, look, my story is not unique. I don't have anything magical or special to say here, and I'm no better or worse than anyone in this room. I simply am sharing one story, and we've all got a story, and they're all as relevant and all you're really doing is you're trying to be a conduit to allow everyone else in that room to speak out. And when you do these sessions, and this is what I want to sort of ask you, you know, about I, I know my experience, I've been in uh, environments where it would be, you know, in a factory where you're with these blokey guys that have worked in a factory for 35 years. And I feel like I'm going to almost be jumped when I walk in there. By the end of it, some of them have been in tears, sharing stories and making change. And it's just, it's incredible to see. Have you experienced a lot of that through the work that you've done? Yeah, I mean, firstly, what I'm going to say, Nick, is it's it's nice because usually I feel like I'm the only one who's sent into factories and depots and all these other kinds of places. Right. <laughs> um, usually, yeah. over the, usually over the years, they've gone, um, shit, who's going to do this talk? Let's send in Daniel if it's going to be, you know, burly blokes or whatever that might be. So yeah. um, it's, 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 it's nice to hear. But look, look, uh, um, um, I find the biggest barrier 
to working in a in a in a room like that or with a group um the the difference is is whether or not you can create enough emotional safety in the room that people can be themselves and feel like they can share what it is that they need to share so often i'll go into places where people have put people in the room before and they have not felt safe to be themselves. If we're talking, it doesn't. It's not just LGBTIQ people, but particularly in country areas, LGBTIQ people. This has been, you know, going back two or three decades. This was literally, and I've heard these stories. This is literally about life and death. Um, you know, today it's more about them potentially being excluded. These things have huge ramifications for their their, their health and safety and their health and well-being, sorry. Um, so to be able to create emotional safety now, that's an art form, it's not a science, but one of the ways in which you can do that, one of the ways, and you, you know, you've just said this yourself, is to share part of your story. Um, so sharing of yourself. If, if I go in there and I kind of just do PowerPoints and kind of speak at them like a robot, Mm -hmm. chances are they're going to go it's another one of these sessions but if i've spoken to you know in these cases most of the time i've spoken to people before we go into the room and then i go into the room and i share what it is that, that that's been going on for them so i reflect it back to them if i share part of my story if i talk about you know all of these stories of good bad and ugly in other regional rural and remote settings then generally that's what's going to resonate with people go i feel safe enough that i'm going to share you know share what i'm going to share so uh, absolutely there's been you know there, there, there is no doubt I've, I've been lucky enough and again I've, I've i've said this you know that i've i've been in the game for 24 years but what that means is is that i hear feedback from sometimes a couple of decades before so people will say you know i, I want to let you know that this changed my life um, I've had people who go, I want you to know that I think that this is the reason why I'm still here on the planet today. I mean, you, you, um, you can't buy that. No, no money, no title, no anything else is going <laughs> to top that kind of feedback. But that, that, um, that feedback is, is that you do everything that you can to create the safety for them to share that stuff. And then you hope like crazy that it's gonna make a difference, it's gonna resonate, and then they can share. Um, for me, mm -hmm. the biggest barrier to magic and change and LGBTIQ inclusion happening in regional, rural and remote communities is, is solely whether local LGBTIQ people can share their local lived experience with decision makers and influencers. That's when we see change. It doesn't matter, I can stand on my head, I can, you know, sing and dance and all the rest of it, but it ain't going to make a difference unless locals with their own experience actually talk to the people who make those decisions and influence those regional, rural and remote communities. Yeah, I mean, it's really just about authenticity is what you're talking about. And I mean, I think, you know, in mental health as a whole, and I've seen this, I've been in the in this area for over a decade now, and um, it's interesting that especially right now when mental health is one of the biggest topics in the world. Every second person I talk to is now apparently starting a mental health app or a service or a business. And I'll, I'll talk to them and ask, okay, why are you doing this and how does it work? And, you know, you look into it and really it's about being capitalistic and looking, okay, this is an area that's big now. Before it was big, I wasn't interested, but because it's big now, I'm going to try and create something. And I think it's actually really dangerous. And I think looking at it from that standpoint in these sort of areas uh, is can potentially do a lot more damage than good. And we need 
to be looking at it not from a selfish standpoint, but what is actually going to be conducive to getting someone to go and get help or speak about it or make that change or be, you know, like like what you said, I love it that you're sort of saying, which I, I agree with, I talk about this all the time, It we don't have to, you know, go and do these major global worldwide crazy things. It's one conversation. You go into a room and you make an impact on one person. That person speaks out. In their community for the next 10 years, they might end up having thousands of conversations that leads to, and you do that all over the place. That can that grassroots change is real and it's going to la- be long lasting. Whereas I just feel like people are taking the wrong approach and we're not, society is really structured in a way that people are just not looking at a lot of this from the right lens. Yeah, I, I like what you say about how, you know, how people are responding to it. It's, it's, it's almost like a, um, it went from being a good problem to have to, to being a challenging one. I, I still remember when I started my work that mental health was not something that was, was mentioned a lot outside of the you know, kind of social workers and youth workers like we all were. And I remember them saying one day mental health is going to be part of the common lexicon. It's going to be something that's talked about by governments and workplaces and all the rest of it. And then you'll know that there's going to be the shift. Um, but you're right. Now that it's part of, you know, it's, it's, it's commonplace, um, that's great because hopefully what that means is, and, you know, I heard you say this about, well, I heard you say this about um, help seeking mm-hmm. and um, normalising that stuff, that mental health is something that impacts on all of us, whether it's ourselves or the people around us. And then it's okay to go and seek help. That's that's my focus. Um, one of the things that I find when I'm working with people is that, you know, in the past, um, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, all of these things have seemed to people to be overwhelming and almost impossible to do in particular settings like schools where I've worked or regional, rural and remote communities. Um, so there's this idea that I have to, in order to meet that, do something extraordinary so people will do things that maybe they think you know should work, but often they lack that authenticity. And, and a lot of the training that I do and a lot of the coaching and mentoring I do with people is to say, pull it back to who are the people in your sphere of influence? Who are you having connections with every day? Who are you having you know um, um, everyday cuppers and conversations and whatever that is? They are the people who are the most important people for you to talk with and have those conversations. And like you said, you know, for some people that's going to be a handful of people. But like you say, if you talk to the right person, that's going to be thousands of conversations. Exactly. And that's my that yeah that, that that's my aim is to is to pull people back from thinking that they have to do extraordinary things and and realize that um you know if you if you work within your sphere of influence and you do a good job and you normalize that help singing, seeking and you share of your story and you give people a chance to you know share their 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 experience then that's you being an ordinary person doing something extraordinary and I think the more that we can get people focused on that, um, the, the better chance that we've got um, to, to face what is, uh, you know, a huge, huge challenge um, for modern day society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if we try and give people too many, you know, too much information at once or make the, you know, overwhelm them, it'll have an adverse effect a lot of the time and lead to them potentially even becoming, you know, more inhibited than they already were. So it's really a fine line about just making it simple, giving people practical things that they can do. And um, that's not met a lot of the time. Um, And I think you're right. I think it's also thinking about meeting people where they're at. 
Yep. So a lot of the a lot of the work that I did in the early days was with schools and looking at challenging homophobia, you know, in the in the late nineteen nineties. And one of the things that struck me was that rather than schools being homophobic or not, open to this or not, it was more about their stage of readiness. Mm-hmm. So really what I've done is I've tried to evolve this as a concept over the years is to say, if I'm going into a community, people go, you know, what do you actually do? Do you go in and kind of do magical things and you say things and everything changes overnight? What I'm generally doing is I'm going into those communities and one cup at a time, I'm assessing their stage of community readiness. Where are they at? Where are their resistance points? Where are their pockets of support? Where are the, where are the, the opportunities for change? Sometimes they're low-hanging fruit and they're seemingly quite small. But what that does is, is that gets them to the next stage of readiness. Mm. And I've seen, um, you know, going into communities where, you know, within, within six to 12 months, you're going from working with a, a bunch of, like an informal network of LGBTIQ people, emerging leaders, established leaders, maybe talking with a couple of mainstream organisations in that town. So like it might be a hospital, it might be a health service, it might be the local government but really fast moving where suddenly it's a community conversations with decision makers and influencers. So I think that meeting where people where they're at, and I think that you're right about getting practical. Now, sometimes that's what individuals can do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's about what a small group of people can do. And then, you know, in my, in my recent years of working in partnership with the, the Victorian state government in working with 29 Victorian communities, is how can that be a conversation and, uh, you know, co-designed action by both the decision makers and influencers and LGBTIQ people, and that's when magic starts to happen. It's got nothing to do with any outside influence. It's about them mm-hmm. feeling emotionally safe enough to share what their concerns and frustrations and challenges are, but also saying this is what we can work on for together. And 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 um, even though that might sound like a simple, straightforward thing in country Australia, that's revolutionary. That's something that we have never seen before, and that's where we're going to see <laughs> the, the 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 greatest change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, like you touched on, how how important do you think it is that we are formally educated about this in schooling? Um, if we were, and you see, if we were from primary school onwards properly educated would you see that making in society a major difference absolutely i'm a i'm a big believer in educator uh, sorry i'm a big believer in education so as i've said my work started in working with young people in schools the the, the first challenging homophobia program i ran was with a group of year nine students in an all-boys catholic school what they said to me was this is an overdue conversation. This was in the late 1990s, mind you. But they said, this is an overdue conversation. If it doesn't affect us, it's going to affect the people around us. We will be interacting with people. This is something that we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. If you look at any of the... And, and, and I'm a big believer in this, not just being uh, focused. Sometimes people say, well, it's all about sexual health education. And I think it's broader than that. But even if you look at sexual health education and when they survey young people, what do young people say? They say it's pretty limited and it doesn't prepare us for life, you know, particularly if we're LGBTIQ, but not just LGBTIQ. So if we listen to that, um, you know, young people themselves are saying that they're not getting enough education around this. Um, people, people used to think that I'd be run out of town with pitchforks in some of the places that I work with, but I've worked with young people in a whole bunch of settings 
and I'm a big believer that they leave that program saying that this is these are lessons for life. These are things that I'm going to carry forward and it's going to make me uh, think differently, not only about myself, but the way in which I interact with people. Some of the, some of the biggest outcomes in schools were where I'd, I'd have young men and you talk about, you know, um, whether or not it's tears or, you know, a, a wavering uh, voice or whatever that might be. I've, I've had young men stare me in the eye and go, as a result of this program, I realise I'm part of the problem. I'm going to stop being homophobic. I'm going to stop bullying kids for being effeminate or because I think they might be gay or whatever that might be. Um, um, we know that that kind of stuff is going to change somebody's life, um, knowing, knowing you know, about what that can mean for someone's formative years. So yes, I'm a big believer in education, but I, I also think that um, sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that it's about a focus on young people. And if I, if I go out and I talk to country areas, it's almost like they say, oh, let's just focus on the schools and let's wait for all the, the old bigoted bastards to die out. Um, as if you can't, you know, you can't engage um, people who are not young and not educated, etc. And, and I guess my work um, and, the, the, you know, one of the stories I'd like to tell is that the majority of people who I am engaging with in country communities in my work are heterosexual, they're cisgender, they're predominantly, um, you know, white, they're all different backgrounds, but they're older people. And what they're all saying is, is that we see this as a great opportunity to be better than we were before. We feel like it's overdue. We feel like we need uh, permission. We need an excuse to get it started. And this is the catalyst for us to try and be better. One of, the, one of the things that I, I've heard many, many times over the years, it's, it's, it's said both about sport and also country communities. And what people say is, oh, if you, if you live in a regional, rural or remote community, there is great benefit for inclusion. It's amazing. All, they'll, 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 they'll list off all of these things about what it means and all the benefits of inclusion. But what I really want to be part of the conversation is what happens when people are brutally excluded from those same communities, from those sporting places, because we know that exclusion is absolutely devastating for people's health and well-being. And so I think that we can't have a conversation about one without having a conversation about the other. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think probably what would come up a lot of the time would be, okay, this is an issue that a lot of people would probably think, well, hang on, this isn't relevant to me, so why do I need to be educated about it? I know that comes up in mental health all the time and um, <clears throat> I'm out there, you know, shouting from the rooftops, well, this isn't just about, especially the work I'm doing, it's not just there to, for, okay, someone severely depressed, this is only for you. What I'm interested in is how can we all be educated about this, whether suffering or not, to improve quality of life, to look out for other people. You know, there's just a long array of lists. I'm sure it happens even more in the work you're doing. So uh, an example would be where I do uh, 101 LGBTIQ inclusion training with mainstream health services. So these are things like hospitals and, you know, they're, they're, they're so uh, over capacity and under-resourced in lots of places. And what they'll say is, you know, wh why is this on the agenda? Um, we're a health service, we're here for everybody. But we know a couple of things about that. Firstly, when, when we know that if people are taking the approach of we're gonna treat everybody the same, we know that ind indirect discrimination happens. Um, and that's a, that's a whole lecture that I can give another time. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, 
Um, but the, the other thing is this, is that we know that if you're an LGBTIQ person in Australia, it's inevitable that you are going to face homophobia, biphobia, transphobia in your everyday life. Now, I'll talk about how you can manage and respond to that. And that actually makes a big difference to how you go with your health and well-being, both physical and mental. But we know the stats, it's beyond debate. LGBTIQ people are overrepresented in any negative health indicator that you can come up with. So what we know is if LGBTIQ people are disproportionately impacted in terms of their physical and mental health, then it means that they're going to be coming to your service in greater numbers. Now, what does the, what does the, the, the research evidence tell us? Is that LGBTIQ people don't feel safe to even turn up and walk through the door, let alone if they do walk through the door, are they going to share who and what they are? Now, why is that important? That's important because as health practitioners, what they know is the more you know about the person, the better that you can provide care for them. And what we're finding is, is that if LGBTIQ people aren't coming and aren't being upfront with those healthcare professionals, that they're actually receiving inappropriate and inferior care. Not because the health professionals don't know what they're doing, it's because they don't have all of the information. Now, extending that, extending that on, what people will often say, and I find that this, this is one of the, the, the unintended consequences of the work that I do, people will say, this has ramifications beyond the LGBTIQ space. Mm. Really what, what, what this is about. Now, I know that at the moment, one of the big buzzwords that's going around is intersectionality. So that is how different identities can impact on your health and well-being and your, your everyday life. What they're saying is, is that really what this is, is that we have to, we have to stop taking shortcuts we have to do better with our intake and assessment. We have to do better at reaching out to groups that might not necessarily know that they can engage with our services. And we can just do a better job of thinking differently about how we interact with people. And really, what does it boil down to? Um, and often people can get you know, uh, wistful and, and, and um, thoughtful about this. They'll, they'll kind of say, it's really we need to be better with how we're interacting with people in general, asking more questions, listening more, not making so many assumptions. And these are things that I think every single one of us um, can do a better job at. Yeah, no, great answer. Um, and the next thing, I, another thing I wanted to ask you, um, what are, I mean, we, we know in, in general stats around mental health are not great. Are they, are they worse in this area? We, we know that LGBTIQ people face um, worse outcomes for their mental health and well-being. But it's important to note that it's not because they're LGBTIQ, it's because of the environment around them and mm -hmm. the discrimination and stigma that they face. So that's the first thing. Yep. But then what you've got is you've got the, the layer of if people are in regional, rural and remote areas. Yep. Um, so what does that mean? People, people say to me there are three big issues in regional, rural and remote Australia if you're an LGBTIQ person. So firstly, there's whether or not there's visibility and often there's a lack of visibility. The second thing is, is it's linked to uh, safety and people mm -hmm. saying that they don't necessarily feel safe. And we know that not feeling safe is a really bad thing for anyone's health and well-being. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is, is access to services, access to services full stop and then access to services that are inclusive where they, they feel safe to be themselves. Now, what does that mean? That means that they are much more likely to have worse health outcomes than uh, their counterparts in the big smoke. But I always like to say too, is that just because you're LGBTIQ and just because you happen to live in a regional rural area does not mean that you will automatically have worse mental health and well-being. Um, it is 
more likely that you are going to face challenges that you might not be able to face on your own if you're feeling isolated and you're being discriminated against. So that's the important thing because, you know, I, I think that... The, Every now and then in the media, there, there are these stories and there are these incredible LGBTIQ people who are living in the back of Burke. Mm. They're just contributing and participating in everyday life and they ch- they've, they've, they've changed their communities just by the force of their very you know, personality and nature. And I really, really love that. But what we know is that that's only the occasional individual. Okay, so that we know that not everybody has access, not everybody has that um, incredible force of nature to be able to, you know, I've met lots of these characters and I've, I've, I've collected their stories and they are extraordinary, but they would be extraordinary wherever they are, whether yep. that be Sydney or whether that be um, Broken Hill or Mount Isa. So it's a, it's, a, it's a reminder that there are lots of good stories, we're hearing more of them, but it's a reminder about on the whole, what are the, the barriers um, the barriers to inclusion and the barriers to access for people's health care that's going to um, to be a bigger issue for LGBTIQ people. Yeah, I think it's so important and it's a universal message what you've just said there as well about the fact that it is if you're, I guess if you're in any minority, the what society will often make us think is, oh, because I'm like that, I'm there's something wrong with me and it's like it's no because society is the way it is we're then made to feel there's something wrong with me and the byproduct of that is we feel shame and it builds and it becomes a problem so it's not actually anything at all wrong with the person same in mental health same in any other area where you're a minority uh, and I think that is just such a important point that we that's you get you get across to people because uh Otherwise, you know, you, you build up shame and it, it builds and you feel like there's something wrong with you and you act out on that. Really important. And, and I think what you've, what you've picked up on is a really important thing that we're getting from the emerging evidence. So if we think of um, specifically to the LGBTIQ space, and I, I absolutely take your point that it can be extrapolated to other groups. But in the LGBTIQ space, what we know is that, you know, I've said that um, LGBTIQ people will inevitably face everyday homophobia, biphobia and transphobia. How they respond to that and how they manage that has a direct relationship with their health and well-being, both physical and mental. So mm. if you believe that you are experiencing homophobia, biphobia, transphobia because of who you are. So as you said, that society will give you that impression that it's your fault and that that's just the way that it is. It has huge ramifications. It's really bad um, for your mental health and well-being as well as your physical health as well. But if you can reframe it and you can say, I am not the issue here, it's the people around me. So that person who is discriminating against me, who's calling me names, who's bullying me or whatever it is, um, if that service is not, not making me feel safe and supported, it's their issue, it's not mine. I have to deal with it and I don't like it and I wish it was different, but it's their issue, it's not mine. We know that in spite of that lack of access, in spite of that discrimination and all of that stuff that people face, that if you can externalise it and say it's their problem, not mine, that it has incredible, wonderful, positive benefits for people's health and well-being. So a lot of the work that I would encourage people to do as practitioners when I do my training and when we get to the what are the practical things you can do, one of the most incredible things that you can do to change someone's health and well-being experience is to get them 
to reframe everyday homophobia, biphobia and transphobia as not being a problem about them, but being with those around them. And that can make a huge, huge difference and can, as I said, change some people's lives. And that's, that's really powerful. It's, it's, I love that because it's simple and it's powerful and it's, it's practical, which I think is just so important. And again, you know, this podcast, the, the, the core of, of this is we're trying to get simple messages out to the masses uh, from all walks of life in just to help give practical advice on what they can do. And I think, again, you know, that uh, universally is a really, really important one because all of us every day face toxic people. We all face situations that frustrate us. We all uh, face people that put us down. And the natural thing to do is ruminate on that and think, um, what's wrong with me? Or I want to, you know, you, you might become spiteful at that person or whatever it is. And we try and con- we're trying to control a situation that we can't control. But if you take, if you remove that and just put it, you know, into that simple context, they're the problem, not me. Remove yourself, you, you know, from those negative toxic situations, just remove yourself and find something that's conducive to you feeling good. I think it's a, a really, really great message that you've, you know, said there. Um, so I also read, I was reading up on you, I read that, I think it was um, in 2010, you uh, went on a, a 38-week journey around Australia. Um, how did that come about? What did you experience from that? I'm sure that would have been a pretty intense and bold thing to do. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? Uh, so, um, I was lucky enough to jump in my openly gay truck called Bruce and drive for 266 consecutive days around regional, rural and remote Australia, went to every single state and territory. Why I did that was because I wanted to get a modern day snapshot about what everyday life was like for LGBTIQ people. So I thought rather than me making that assessment and kind of guessing about that, I just wanted to get on the road and go and collect stories and talk to everyday people. So I had countless cuppers, um, <laughs> way too many cuppers. But you know, with that, with that idea that you could you could change communities one cupper at a time. So most people, when they hear about me jumping in the truck and driving around Australia, they think that you know a couple of things are going to happen. One is that I'm going to be chased out of town with pitchforks. That me or myself, um, sorry, that me or my openly gay truck called Bruce is going to get damaged or harmed in some way, or that simply no one would want to talk to me. And what was clear right from the start was people said, this is about bloody time that we have this conversation. And there were two main reasons that people said that. Firstly, rural communities were saying that we know that rural suicides, um, that LGBTIQ people are overrepresented in these numbers. This is a huge issue for our town. The impact um, echoes for years and years and decades into the future. We know that we're not doing a good enough job about saving LGBTIQ people. The second thing that they said is, we feel that LGBTIQ people can't be themselves and whether or not we like it, they often go to the big smoke. So what we're doing Mm -hmm. is we're losing some of our best people because they feel they can't be themselves. We need to change that conversation in our town. Now, I have um, only been the, the, the two scariest moments of my life. The first was 
when I was standing outside a classroom of an all-boys Catholic school about to go in and teach a group of year nines for the first time in the late 1990s. That was, that was time number one. The second was being, about, being uh, about to jump into that truck and to drive around Australia because I had no guarantee that it was going to work. I had no guarantee that I was going to get to all of these parts of Australia and there was going to be any kind of response. But what really, really struck me was that the similarities across the states and territories, the similarities between rural, regional or remote areas, I thought that there was going to be there were going to be these great differences. I thought I was going to see, you know, like, you know, WAs here and NTs there and all the rest of it, but it was really, really sobering. It was sobering to me that we really, um, we really hadn't um, gotten to a stage where we could have a sophisticated conversation about what LGBTI inclusion people's participation and contribution to, to country life could be. Um, I spoke with so many LGBTIQ people and what they said to me was, I want to stay in my place. I want to stay in my community, but I feel like I might have to move to the big smoke to be myself. I don't want to, I want to stay. Now that was a very different narrative to how people in the big smoke were talking. They were saying, well, obviously these places are full of rednecks and all they'd want to do is get out and leave. Mm -hmm. um, actually, mm -hmm. that wasn't the case, is that they want to be in their communities, they want to contribute and participate, but they don't always have the opportunities. And I guess, you know, I've been working deeply in, in you know, country Australian life for the last decade. And what I would say that's different, you know, that, 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 that it's different now is that back in 2010, there were plenty of signs of hope. So I'm a person who likes to go out and find signs of LGBTIQ hope everywhere that I go, every nook and cranny of the great country that we're in. And what I'm, what I'm looking for are the good, the bad and the ugly stories. I can tell you that these days, there are so many more good stories. There are so many less ugly stories, but there are still too many bad stories. Um, and that is where people are excluded. Someone, someone said, said it to me quite bluntly. He said, look, um, no, no poof is going to be kicked to death in the streets like they used to be in this country town. So I guess that's progress. And so what we're seeing is, is that, um, yet one, I agreed with him wholeheartedly and said, absolutely, <laughs> um, <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, um, but what we're still seeing is exclusion. We're yeah. still seeing people who don't feel that they can be themselves um, and, and that there are not yet enough good stories. And I think that there's a lot that can be done about that. Yeah. Incredible, mate. And another question I had for you was, um, how did you personally, I mean, you've embarked on this amazing journey, when you first got into it, how did you have the courage to do it yourself? And I probably shouldn't call it courage. I was talking to someone yesterday about this and he was saying, Nick, you know, how did you get the courage to go and speak out about mental health? And he was saying, actually, no, it should, we shouldn't call it that because we're, we're actually trying to educate people that um, this is something that everyone should be talking about it. But, you know, how did, how did you actually, because it's scary to take that first step, you know, what, what really prompted you? How did you, you know, push yourself to do that at the beginning? Um, so I, I'm a big believer in a saying, I think it was Stephen Fry who said, um, courage is when you're just as shit scared as everyone else, but you somehow find a way to put one foot in front of the other. Mm. Um, and I really... I love Stephen Fry. Yeah, yeah I, really, I, I really see it as that, is that, is that what I'm always led by 
is the, the feedback I get from LGBTIQ people and the invitations that I got. So really, that's what, that's what leads me. So um, what, what, what I have realized is that I get far more from my work than I put into it. And that what I try and do is continue to contribute where there's invita- invitations and there's good feedback. So first of all, that was working in schools. And that was because there was at that stage in the 1990s, there, there weren't the conversations happening. Um, and you know, in 2010, there really wasn't a national conversation about what LGBTIQ life was like in country Australia. So I was really literally, uh, you know, I was on the smell of an oily rag trying to get around the country because it was self-funded. But really what it was about was it was focusing on the stories and actually finding out if I, if I focus on myself as an individual, you know, I'm, I'm quite anxious and nervous and I'm very much an introvert. But if I focus on other people and what it is that I can do for them. Um, so as I, you know, I've said to you um, throughout this podcast is listening to them, mm-hmm. reflecting back their experience, giving them practical strategies of things that they can do in their everyday lives. Um, if I focus on all of that, that's what gets me up in the morning. But if I start thinking any broader and bigger than that about how big it is, you know, the, the challenges that we all have to face, um, particularly now in a, in a COVID-19 context, is that I can be overwhelmed. But yeah. again, my, 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 my goal is always about what can, I, what can I focus on? And some days I do a better job of doing that than others. Yeah, but I, I really, really love that little bit of information you've put in there just then of because um, I think we all fall into this. Um, and it's, it can be when the ego starts taking over, when, um, when, we, when we do look at it, not from our personal view, but like you said, how can I actually help here then? And I'm the same as you. I'm introverted. I'm um, naturally very introverted, yet I've made a career going and speaking out in public and on the other side of things, um, pursuing acting. And it's when I have fallen into a heap with the things I'm doing, it's when I my ego started taking over and I was, you know, start getting competitive and looking at, I need to do more or do this, or are they going to judge me? Or how do I, you know, how do I um, compete with this person or whatever it is? And that's when things fall in a heap, when you just simplify it and focus on just the process, enjoy that process and um, focus on, I just want to make some sort of change in whatever area. And this is, again, a universal thing for, for everyone, whatever the hell you're doing, because it is so overwhelming. In this world we live in now, there is so much information. There's so many different avenues we can go down. There's so many, there's just so much. And, you know, with coronavirus that that added uncertainty about what's going to happen when am i am i going to have more opportunity uh how do i deal with this it is a it can really it can send people into a spiral that you find that it's very difficult to get out of and then and then look the the other thing is that you know like cuz cuz um you know ego does come into it um but there's also the the um the the wisdom that comes from being humble too because you know, across 24 years, um, you know, I, I find that whenever my ego comes into it, usually I get my ass handed to me by the universe in some form or another. So I'm, I'm, I'm slowly learning because I know that that really hurts um, yeah. when that happens. But, 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 you know, it's not, it's, it's not that, um, it's not that uh, you know, ego um, doesn't necessarily play a part. It's just seeing that, um, it's just recognising that your ego is being very um, 
very human, um, but also going, that's really, really nice, but it's not the most important thing right now. Um, so so managing, managing my ego, I come from a very, very um, proud German uh, policeman father who was um, 150% ego. And um, it's been a process of me um, unlearning that that's not the way that... Um, you're going to do your best work with the people around you in life. That's yeah, and that's so important. You know, where we often become a product of how we're raised and the environment we've grown up in, and and no change happens unless we actually take action to make that change. And it's a really difficult thing. I think people underestimate how hard it is, but then they also underestimate how rewarding it is if you can make that change. And if you don't do that work on yourself, you know, you could achieve anything you could become the most famous person on the planet yet you're going to be miserable if you haven't done that inner work and it again goes back to how we're educated in society if we could be taught completely the opposite way let's actually learn about ourselves first and let's find out who we are and you know become okay with ourselves as a person then we can go and find what we want to do with our lives but often it become it's the opposite it's I'm chasing something that I probably don't even want or trying to do something to impress someone that I don't really know or care about because I need that validation and it's never ending. Yeah, and I'm 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 just I'm just mindful of the of the the anecdotal and the research evidence that that keeps coming back time and time again is that that those people who are having challenges with their mental health that one of the best things that they can do is focus on others uh, and focus on the people around them. Um, and, and, and look at ways in which they can contribute. Um, and that's, that's something that, you know, I, I keep saying this again and again to anyone who will listen, is that I get so much more from my work than I put into it. And yes, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a, you know, an openly gay man. I'm working in the LG, you know, LGBTIQ space, and that's been the majority of my journey. But, but what I've learned is so much more. And, um, you know, what, what I've been able to do, I, you know, when I and wandering through when we're allowed to travel, when I'm wandering through the deserts of Namibia by myself, I'm not thinking about myself as a gay man and the LGBTIQ work that I do. It's more about me as a human being and the journey that I've been on and the challenges that I've faced and the, the work that I've yet to do. Uh, it's just I'm so lucky to be able to have had this um, as, a, as a vehicle for me to be the best person that I can be. And I, and I, and I take it seriously because um, the work that I do is tough sitting with people and communities and dealing with some of the stories that I that I do deal with is really really tough stuff and it's about me being in the best possible shape that I can hear that mm-hmm. and actually help people come up with some some uh, some ways uh, to manage that and then aspirationally maybe even to change that um, and so uh, the best person that I can be and that's that's going to be a journey I'll do until I'm um, dropping over, keeling over. Um, you know, I'll be. I, I'm. I'm. I'm leaning into the how scary it is to keep on challenging yourself and and looking in the mirror um, and coming up short. Yeah, but it's incredible, mate. And it, it takes so much. I guess yeah, courage to to do that, to continually do that, to keep challenging yourself. Because I think again, we look at society. We're taught that achieve X or do this. We're, there's all these end goals that okay, and then I'll be okay. But it's like, okay, but what if we actually get that? What about the remainder of your, your life? What are you actually going to do? So it's it's coming to that realisation there's no end point. There's no magical, magic pill. There's no um, 
for every single one of us. And it's humbling, but it's actually liberating when you really grasp it because then you realize it's, it's okay. I can do whatever. You've got freedom to do what you really care about because nothing's going to be my salvation or savior. Nothing's going to be the, I'm not going to do, you know, get to an, a, a, this, whatever this, you know, um, saving grace is and everything's fine. It is only going to, you're only going to evolve and be okay if you do the work every day and just keep evolving, keep looking yourself in the mirror. I really, yeah, I love that. And I guess the the other the other element to that is um the people that you have around you, and I'm a I'm a big believer in in having um a magic five. So what I've learned from LGBTIQ people wherever they are is that the difference between someone surviving and thriving is generally that they have five supportive people in their lives. So I call it the magic five. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what I find is is that you know sometimes I do lose my way, I do forget my intent, um, I do get distracted or I get you know knocked over by a whole bunch of challenges and it's it's lovely. I, I you know I say to people I can sit down with five people in my life, and by the time I've had a cuppa with each of them, I know what it is that I I need to do next. Yeah. And often often what they're doing is they're just listening. But also, which sometimes can be annoying, is they're reflecting back things that I've said in the past. So things like my intent is is to be the best person I can be, all that kind of stuff. And yes, it's cliche, but when it's being reflected back at you at a time when you're you're not feeling you know necessarily great or you're facing a great challenge, it's a it's a great reminder. And so, if anything, if I can give people any advice, regardless of where they live in Australia, um, and I, I think this is beyond just LGBTIQ people, but especially yeah. for them, is that they're reflected wisdom from them is that when they have five supportive people in their lives, it can remind them that the homophobia, biophobia and transphobia and the challenges that they face in life are not going to be about them and it's about the people around them and it's thinking about how you can manage and respond to that. And what we're finding is great results with how people are. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't make life perfect and ideal, but gee, it's a, it's a, it's a huge difference for people's everyday health and well-being, both physical and mental. Absolutely. I'm a huge believer in that. And I think we become a product of the, of the, you know, top five people that we spend our time with. And, and in addition to what you've just said there, I think it's making people aware that it is really important that if we have toxic relationships, sometimes we, you know, obviously we need to try and, you know, if it means something to us, try and see if there's a way to find that happy medium. But often with those toxic relationships, the solution is to walk away. And that doesn't mean you're a bad person, but we can fall in that trap of feeling like, no, I owe it to that person because of the history we have or whatever it is that I have to keep them in our lives. And that's not how life works. Life's about evolving. No one's better or worse than each other, but everyone's on different trajectories. And if someone's not, that's in your circle because of nostalgic reasons, but they're not conducive to where you're going and they're having that impact, it's actually really, really important. It can have a major impact on your mental well-being if you don't do something about it. Yeah, and 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 completely agree, and 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 sometimes what that means is that you need support, um, and sometimes that can be professional to actually work out whether or not that's a relationship that you can continue, and what boundaries you can put in place, and whether you know whether it's it's worthwhile trying to save it, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I, I like to say to people too is that you know people sometimes say to me, well, Daniel, I don't have a magic five; I only have a magic one or a magic two, or I don't have anybody. And and again, as a practical thing, and particularly when I'm talking to people who are supporting LGBTIQ people, is I say that 
it might be um, an action plan that you can have. You know, who else can you tell about this? Who else might be supportive? You know, who else can you reach out to and think about who that magic five might be? And, and, and I'll extend that out to if you're even a health professional or an educator who's supporting LGBTIQ people, can you have a professional magic five? Can you have five supportive people as a network? Um, one of the things that I did find when I was driving around Australia, which actually surprised me, was that there were, there were a whole bunch of people who I met um, and I was sitting talking with them and they'd say, I feel like I'm the only LGBTIQ friendly voice in this town. I feel like I'm isolated in just being a person who thinks that this is something that we need to provide more support and uh, visibility and safety to. So I, I think that if we all think about, and I, I, you know, I would, I would hope that this was all of us, is that we just think about who are who are the five people that we've got, and sometimes that might be if we're in a, a front-facing role, like you know, like yourself and others, mm. um, um, is that we we um, step up and go. It's not just about us encouraging everybody else to have that support and to help seek, but we actually we we walk the walk because. Um, you know, sometimes there's not conveniently a, a lovely set of five people there for us yeah. <laughs> at all stages. That waxes and wanes, and that's one of the one of the the, the reasons why you want five. But anyway, yeah, absolutely. Um, and just before we finish up, I've just got a couple of questions at the end that I always ask everyone, just sort of more quick fire ones. But um, is there any final if we, if you're going to give the listeners some and you've you've given so many amazing bits already, but if you were going to sum it up into sort of for yourself in terms of ma- maintaining your mental well-being on a daily basis, what are are there a couple of practical things that you really believe in and do every day um, that you could recommend to our listeners? Um, the most important thing that I've found um, through the bushfires that we've had here in Victoria and also through COVID-19 is that I work really, really hard every single day to focus on what I can control. Because what I find is that when I start to think about all the things I can't control, I get very, very upset, frustrated and disappointed. And then when I focus on what I can do, uh, it helps. Sometimes that's merely just being able to make my bed and make sure I drink enough water. Um, but other days it's a whole lot more. So that, that, that's, that's number one for me. I love that. Yeah. Again, you know, like uh, what I love about all the advice you've given is it's so simple and practical. And, and that's probably the most important thing, you know, just focusing on what we can control because we will drive ourselves mad if we if we just if we start looking at all the things we can't control because it's never ending it's a never ending list and just finally before i go into these closing questions um where where can people go if they want to learn more about you the work you're doing and and find out about that um, there's never been a better time to be LGBTIQ in regional, rural and remote Australia. If people have any doubts or uncertainty that change can happen in their towns, um, please go to niche.org.au and let's set up either a virtual cuppa or my preference is I'll come to your community and have a cuppa with you face to face and make, uh, make no mistake, we can, we can do great things in your town. Fantastic. Um, so just a couple of final questions here. The, um, the first one, um, and these are, yeah, just sort of, it can be whatever first comes to mind, just quick answers to these. Um, what's your best childhood memory? My best childhood memory would be um, hanging out with my mum in the, the, the kitchen on a Saturday when she was making food. She just had this way of always making me feel um, safe, warm and welcome in that kitchen. I love it. Uh, what do you think currently in society today is the biggest burden on mental well-being? Um, I think the biggest burden on mental health is uh, 
probably an overconsumption of social media and media and the lack of limitations and boundaries to that consumption. Couldn't agree more. It's um, it's a major, major issue. Um, and in addition to that, where, where do you see uh, mental health being in 10 years' time? Do you see it as, um, you know, issues like what you've just described? Do you see that as improving? Do you see it becoming a bigger problem? Where, where, where do you think things will be at in, in the next decade? In the next decade, I hope that there, uh, there's a continuation of this community conversation, which I think is broader than it ever has been before. I am hopeful that it's going to be um, uh, integrated rather than being the, you know, one of the final things to go on the agenda and one of the first things to be struck off. And, and rather than it being about just a response to mental health, I think it's, I would hope that we learn the lessons of what we need to build in um, before people get to the stage where they feel like they need to seek out support, assistance and um, services. Um, I really, really hope that in 10 years time, people feel really, really okay to discuss it with the people around them and to feel absolutely okay and see that it's a great thing for them to do to actually uh, help seek and go out and find services and get the support that they need um, and understand that that's something uh, that every single human being can benefit from. Great. Yeah. Fantastic answer, mate. Um, two more here. What, what's your personal definition of happiness? Um, I think that happiness is uh, fleeting and elusive and I focus more on being content and satisfied because that means that it's uh, because of something that I'm in control of as opposed to something that can be just um, uh, foisted upon me at any given moment. Absolutely. Yeah, the word happiness has been sort of defined in the wrong way. Happiness should actually mean, you know, peace of mind. Exactly. It should, it should mean what you've just described there. Uh, final one, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done? Uh, the most courageous thing that I think I've ever done was when I walked into a classroom of year nine students at an all-boys Catholic school in the late 1990s in order to run a challenging homophobia program. And I was told that it was the first time it had happened anywhere in the world. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on here and chatting me today, mate. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure the listeners are going to get a huge amount of value out of uh, what you've said, the advice that you've given. Uh, I hope you keep doing the work you're doing forever because it's so important and you are making a major change. So thank you so much, mate, for coming on here. Thank you so much for the chance, Nick. No problem. This episode of Move Your Mind was produced and edited by Tim Boozer. Thanks to Daniel Whithouse for joining me today for Move Your Mind. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.